there is a chant that uh, is familiar to many of us. It's, by, it's from the Teze community. And we often sing it as an affirmation of faith. There is one God, one faith, one baptism, one God and author of us all. <clears throat> you know how it goes. There is one God, one faith, one baptism. There is one God who is author of all. So, there you go. That chant speaks to what is happening in our first reading from 1 Timothy, where the author, oftentimes believed to be Paul, but most scholars believe that is not true. They believe it was probably a disciple or a follower of Paul who is writing this letter to Timothy to encourage Timothy and encourage the church. And so whoever that person is, a.k.a. pretending to be Paul, but not Paul, said, first of all, that's how he began the second chapter, first of all, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. So first of all, everyone is to be included in prayer. Then, focusing the lens a little more tightly, now those in power, kings and those in high positions, that they may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. So we're admonished to pray for our leaders, those in high places, as well as pray for everyone else. And that means those we don't like as well as those we like. And I don't know about you, but I've been praying for our leaders lately, those I like and those I don't like. <laughs> for, as the author says, this is right and acceptable in the sight of God who desires that everyone be saved and come into the knowledge of truth. For there is one God. In Deuteronomy, we hear, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. These words, known as the Shema, are central to the Jewish prayer book. And it's what is taught to each Jewish child. It's the first passage of scripture that a Jewish child learns. God is one. And we are to love God with all our soul and heart and mind. Jesus knew this prayer. As did his followers, the disciples. In fact, the message of the Shema about keeping our heart and eyes, and mind, and soul focused on the Holy One is really paying attention to that which matters. So what really matters to you? This is something that we pondered a few weeks ago when I shared with you that quote from Martin Luther King Jr., who said that our lives begin to end the day that we become silent about things that matter. Our lives begin to end when we become silent about the things that matter. So what really matters to you? What matters to me? And do you and I believe that there is only one God? We'll get back to that. Our gospel this morning, Luke 16, picks up where we left off, Jenna left off last week, 
Jesus had just been confronted by murmuring and grumbling Pharisees who were criticizing him for welcoming and eating with tax collectors and sinners. In response to their self-righteousness, Jesus told a parable about a person finding a lost sheep, about a woman finding a lost coin. And then when the shepherd found the sheep and the woman found the coin, she went to her friends and family and everyone rejoiced. And the message is, that's how God is with us when we turn our hearts and minds back to life, back to God. Now, our passage this morning isn't directly toward the Pharisees, though they're eavesdropping. Jesus is primarily teaching his disciples about how to expand their understanding of God's embrace. And if you read in between the lines, the disciples didn't get it, and by extension, neither do we, at least on first glance. So listen to this very confusing parable. There was a rich man who had a steward, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his goods. And he called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Turn in your account of your stewardship so you can no longer be the manager of my property. The steward said to himself, What should I do since my master is taking my position away? From me. What should I do since my master has taken my position away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that the people may receive me into their houses when I am put out of my position. Summoning his master's debtors, one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? This man replied, A hundred jugs of olive oil. He said to him, Take out your bill, sit down quickly, and make it fifty. Then he said to another, another, how much do you owe? A hundred containers of wheat. He said to him, take out your bill and make it 80. And his master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than are the children of light. I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of dishonest wealth so that when it is gone, they may welcome you into their eternal homes. Whoever is faithful in little is faithful also in much, and whoever is dishonest in very little is dishonest also in much. If, then, you have not been faithful with the dishonest wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to another, who will give you what is your own? No slave can serve two masters, for the slave will either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and wealth. So is that clear? (laughs) We'll get back to that. A few months ago, it was in May, I think, I think it was Pentecost Sunday, actually, I was coming to church later than I wanted to, as that morning I missed my alarm, and as the Spirit sometimes does, she tells me something in my sleep that I should put into my sermon. So as I was doing a sermon rewrite, 
and waking late, I realized this was not a good combination. Anyway, I'm driving down 7th Avenue and around the reservoir and the curve, and I notice a police car that's opposite the vacant lots at Lawton and 7th, where Clancy sells the pumpkins and the Christmas trees. And I slowed down, and I began to immediately fiddle with my computer bag behind my seat because I had my tab back there for my collar shirt. I couldn't reach it. As I passed the police car, surely going now 25, he did a U-turn, and as they say, I was busted. Getting caught. That is what initially is taking place in this very odd, and I might add universally disliked parable of Jesus. Some scholars say that parables are to confuse the hearers. Well, if that's true, and I don't believe it is, this one wins, hands down. I have to admit, in terms of looking for life lessons, this parable about the dishonest manager or steward is cryptic at best. So let me try to parse out and make some sense of this, and I'm not going to make sense of the whole thing. So we could do a whole Bible study term just on this. So a rich man has a manager, a steward in charge of all of his accounts, his property. Charges are brought against the manager that he has been wasting his owner's property. The rich man, the owner, understandably ticked off, summons the manager and says, game over, give me your books, you're out of here. The manager had been caught doing some shady behavior. He knows he's lost his job, and he, be he begins to consider, now what am I to do? There's no sign of any remorse or acknowledgement of his actions. Then in one of the most self honest assessments in scripture, he says, I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm too proud to beg. So now what? I know what I'll do. I'll enlist the good will of my community, going to all of those who owe my boss money, or wheat, or oil, and in effect continue to steal from my employer by cutting some of their bills in half, or significantly reducing portions debt owed by others. By bringing the debtors into his crime, the manager ensures that he now has their support. As he puts it, people may now welcome me into their homes. Well, you bet they would. They are now indebted to him. So here's where the parable takes an unexpected twist. Instead of the manager being tossed in jail or in hell for gnashing of teeth, you know, or, or Mordor, um, if you know that movie, um, where we might think the person needs to go, like what happened with, we thought should have happened with the people with Enron scam, and now the Wells Fargo scam. Instead of that happening, the steward returns to the employer who seems impressed with what his manager has done, kind of slaps him on the back and congratulates him for his shrewdness, like saying, that a boy. What is going on here? What is Jesus trying to get us to get? Now, by contrast of what we might think would be the appropriate action, like the jail or hell or being excised or shunned from the community, 
Jesus turns this whole understanding sideways. Okay, a crook gets caught. And not only does he not reform his ways, he actually continues to steal as a way out of the situation that he had created in the first place. And then of all amazing things, wins the support and admiration of the victim, his boss. Is this making sense to you? It's not making sense to me at all. What? What did you say? <laughs> well, no, he didn't have a name. And we're not going there. So what is Jesus getting at? <laughs> Bad Carol. Um, in this parable, I believe Jesus is saying that no matter what we may do, no matter what we may do, God is always a God of forgiveness. God is always a God of forgiveness. Like the loving father in the prodigal son, in Luke 15, he squanders all of his inheritance, loose living, comes back, and his father throws him a huge party. Now, the older brother is not happy with this, and he goes away and pouts, and we might be unhappy with it because it seems unfair. The manager forgives. He forgives debts that he had no right to forgive, he forgives for all the wrong reasons. But the core teaching of this parable, my friends, is forgiveness. Forgiveness. And forgiveness is always an action of God. Always. Remember the Shema? We are to love God with all our heart and soul and might. This is how we stay God-focused. This is how we decide what really matters, is when our focus is on the holy. Jesus is saying, forgive regardless. Forgive it all. Forgive now. The manager forgave debt. It doesn't appear to matter much in Jesus' mind why he forgave those debts or that he had, in a real sense, even the right to forgive them. The officer who pulled me over had a right to give me a ticket. How fast were you driving, he asked. And I said, probably not 25, smiling. And he said, yes. Where are you going in such a hurry? Well, I'm the pastor of the church right down the road, and I'm late. <laughs> and he smiled and said, well, pastor, I'm going to give you a warning. Have a good service. <laughs> I deserved a ticket. I received unmerited grace. And this is how God is with us. The manager engaged in relentless, single-minded acts of forgiveness. It doesn't matter why. It doesn't matter how. He forgave. He forgave the debts so he would be somehow embraced. One commentator suggested that his actions actually reconciled the entire community. For the rich man now had the goodwill of all those people who owed him money. 
Forgiveness of one spills over to forgiveness of all and others. Sometimes we do things for the wrong reasons. Sometimes we may be self-focused and self-centered rather than God-focused. But through it all, God is wooing us to be better than we could ever imagine ourselves to be. Which gets us back to that verse from 1 Peter, that there is one God. And that chant, there is one God, one faith, one baptism. There is one God and author of all. If there is one God, and I firmly believe there is, regardless of whatever names we might name that God, my initial question resurfaces. Do we believe this? Do we believe there is one God, or do we put our energy and focus in other things that we might believe are like God? Possibly our sense of self, our anger, our fear of forgiveness. Wherever we put our energy, that's where we put our trust. Is there one God vying for your attention, or are there many false gods? Do we believe in one God, maker of heaven and earth? A God who is all about forgiveness, inclusion, and welcome? Or do we believe in a God, even if we might not consciously say so, a God of vengeance, a God of right thinking, whatever that means, of giving others what they deserve rather than what they need? So who is your God? My God is a God of forgiveness. Is yours. So that takes us to our takeaway this morning. Is there someone that you need to forgive in whom you've been holding a grudge for maybe a long time? Is there someone from whom you need to seek forgiveness and ask for reconciliation? Or might you need to forgive yourself for something that you've been holding on to far too long? Maybe it's even your view of God. My friends, there is one God, and this God is a God of forgiveness. And there's nothing, nothing you have to do to receive it, whether you deserve it or not. And this is then our response to one another.